Very cool. So, so many people are always, whenever, I'm so excited about what God's doing in our church. That's so cool. But I, I think most people, when they hear about like, people going to Uganda, if you're like, kind of new to Jesus, new to the church, you're like, I'm so afraid of following Jesus because he's going to send me to some faraway place, like Uganda. Uh, but these guys are really excited. You guys, and I just want to let you know, it's, um, it's a really cool, the, the team is really great, and what they're, what they're doing as part of a local partnership in Uganda is so great. Um, the, the church there is just doing some ex- exciting stuff that we get to be a part of. Um, very glad that you're with us. If you're new, so glad that you decided to join us. My name is Jeff. Um, I'm the uh, lead pastor here, and I'm, I just want to welcome you. I'm so glad that you're here. I know there's a lot of places you could be on a Sunday morning. The weather's nice, things are, but you chose to be with us, and I'm so glad that you're here. And if you're like kind of wondering, am I going to fit in here? What are they going to make me do? What, are they, what Do I have to sing a song or do, do I have to stand up? Nothing. Just want to let you know, I'm so glad that you're here. And um, if you're looking for a place, this, this is kind of who we are. This is, maybe this suits you. We're a group of people who are trying to follow Jesus and love other people. Um, we're convinced that there's not a single person in this room that has all the answers. We're convinced that nobody in this room always gets it right. And that we are fumbling as best as we know how toward Jesus and, and towards greater love towards people around us. And if that sounds like something you want to be connected in or the kind of people you are, great. If you're looking for a church full of perfect people, that is not us. And um, I just want to really quickly just cl- clear up that misconception. Um, but we're a group of people so that are trying to figure that out. If that's you, great. So glad that you're here. Um, so we got Uganda happening. We got this Serve Day happening. Super excited about that. We believe that the you know, beauty of the church is always best expressed outside these four or five walls that we have here. And so excited to do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I want to tell you too, just give you a little affirmation, kind of looking back and kind of, some, kind of set the prime or prime the pump for some other stuff, which is you are a generous church. If you're new with us, you're sitting in the room full of very generous people who are a part of what God is doing in and through this church community. Um, we, uh, we just signed a, a, an extension in our lease for this building, which is really, really good. We thought we might have to be out of here. Yes, it's good. Some of you, are, yes. <laughs> and I, I know, you know, some of you are like, when are we going to get a new building so we can get rid of this wall? You have to love the wall. I'm just saying that. You have to fall in love with that wall now for a while. Um, so really excited about that. Um, and just as we kind of get to the end of our fiscal year, we get to actually look, look back at kind of the generosity story of our church. And God has done so many great things through you. You know, our church has, over the past year, kind of some transition and begun to expand. We've seen new people get connected. We've seen new ministries birth. We've seen um, some, we've hired some people, and especially in the student ministries department, with high school and junior high ministry. Yes, there you go, uh, said the bearded one. Um, <laughs> you know, Jordan's our high school pastor. He, um, we always tell, we always want our high school students to have their lives look like Jesus. So we hired a guy that looks exactly like Jesus. <laughs> beard, except Jesus if he had glasses and tattoos. Other than that, everything else is the same. Uh, but um, where was I? But there's so many great things happening. And I just want to tell you, as we get to the end of the fiscal year, we get to look at some of these things. And I, and I just want to, want to tell you that um, some of you are, are giving and you're part of what God's doing here at Mariner's Mission Viejo. You're regularly, sacrificially, generously, and this is most important, joyfully giving to what God's doing here. We never want you to ever feel like in any capacity that you're ever obligated or coerced, or, you know, in some way shamed into giving. That's not what we're about. It's not what the Bible is about. But if you want to join God in what he's doing, I want you to consider this year. What does it look like to think about generosity just a little bit differently than you presently are? Some of us have that sacrificial giving all the time kind of stuff. Some of us give a, give a little bit more reluctantly, but we do it a little more regularly. Some of us, we're just like, hey, we're not Sure, we trust the church because the church, we heard a story one time about a church extorted money or did something crazy. And you're like, I'm not giving any money to the church. And others of us are like, I didn't know that's kind of what you did. I thought this was kind of a funded thing. Let me tell you, one thing is this. I've been at every stage of all of those things in my own life. 
One of the things you do need to know is Mariner's Church is a network of a couple churches called Mariner's Church. There's, you know, we've got a bunch of them all over the place. There's one sort of the, the founding member of that group of churches is the Irvine campus. It is massive. You know, we used to call that the main campus. Now, this is the main campus. But, you know, but, you know, now that's, we just talk about the Irvine campus, which is several thousand people that attend the church there on the weekend. We call that just the chair warehouse. They keep all of our chairs and we need chairs. We go there and get them. And some of you guys know that. But some of, part of what you need to know is we're an independently, we're, we fund ourselves independently. We don't take, we don't take, there's no overhead costs or anything else that goes from that big Irvine campus that some of you may know about. None of those things that we do here come out of Irvine. They all come from us individually, from our own church campus. And so some of what you, you know, some of what you might think about is this is a big camp. It's a big church with a massive network that's all, no, no, no. We are fully independent. We're networked with Mariners. We're under the Mariners, you know, umbrella, but we're an independent church. And so... I just need you to know that, that you're, when you give, it actually goes to this church community, and we get to decide what the next year looks like based on what you give. So that's it. We just, whatever you, we live on what you give, that's how ministry works. Um, so you'll hear more about that in the next couple of weeks, but just want to let you know about some of those things. If you have questions about that, I'd love to answer those for you as well. But um, one of the things we talk about is we're in a series called What If? And I guess in some ways, you know, we're asking the question, what does it look like? What if I thought about my own generosity just a little bit differently than I already have? What if I just thought about it differently? That's all I'm asking you to do is consider generosity differently than you already have. What does your next step look like? So we're in this series called What If. For some of you who are new with us, you know, you're looking at what, is it, what does it look like? What if Jesus said and did the things that he said he did? I mean, what if the Bible actually is true? What if it did say those things? What does that mean? And others of us have a different kind of conversation. We look at the Bible. We look at this sort of wandering through the book of Luke. We look at this conversation and we go, well, what if I lived like it was actually true? So not only what if it's true, but what if I actually lived as if it were true in my own life? What would that mean? How would that impact the way I parent, the way I work in my job, my generosity, my friendships, my relationships? What does it look like to do those things? It's a very cool series. A lot of great conversations are happening in it. And um, so let's just pray and then we'll get into today's message and uh, we'll, get, we'll get started. So, Jesus, so grateful for the generosity you have bestowed on us. We are a regular group of people. We realize that. We are people with faults and flaws and secrets and addictions and regrets. And uh, Lord, we know that you receive us as your children, and we're so grateful for that. Fathers, we consider what it might look like today to understand even a little bit more deeply what it means to be blessed. Father, might we get a great understanding of that. But we have our own preconceptions. We have our own understanding about what blessing and what it is and all that kind of stuff. Father, might we just be drawn a little bit more closely to you to depend upon you. Father, we have stories of this past week and in our own lives. We are aware of the suffering and the pain in the world. We're aware of our own suffering. We're aware of the suffering that happens even in our own community. Jesus, we know that we need you. And we know that the world needs you. So Jesus, for just a moment, we pause that you might speak to us. That we might humbly, as humbly as we can, receive from you what you might speak to us about today. So, Father, we give you a moment of stillness in an already busy week, Jesus. Jesus, help us to find a humble dependence, a belief in your blessing, that may look way different than we ever could have possibly imagined. Jesus, we turn to you for the deepest needs in our soul, knowing that nothing else can satisfy them. 
In your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, so if you, uh, this, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. If you want to open your Bible to Luke 6, we'll be beginning in verse uh, 17. If you want to pull out your outline, you got an outline when you came in, in your bulletin. You want to pull that out and follow along. You want to take notes, great. If you want to follow along on the screen, you want to look in your own Bible, whatever else it is you want to do, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Um, so just as you're doing that. Have you guys ever had the experience where someone um, does something that you usually do differently than you do, and you just thought, how does that person survive? Like they, you, you watch them do something and you think, they are doing it differently and they're probably going to die because they do it differently than me. They are, or, or they're so offensive that they do it differently than me. Have you guys ever had this experience? Um, like, I, I was just thinking, this is a dumb example, but I was thinking of, um, you know, if you've ever, guys, have you ever been in a gym and you wa- you're shaving there and you watch someone else shave and you watch the way that they use the razor and you're like, that's crazy. That is so insane. You're going to, that's, that is, that's offensive that you, they go up and you go down or whatever it is that you do, it's backwards and they have a reason, but you're like, that's crazy. I I was thinking about all these things. I was thinking about all these things that sort of in my life that kind of, I started thinking, watching my own kids, when do we start forming these things in our lives that we have a way and that it is the only way we know about and every other way should be done away with? I I don't know, but I'm watching my five-year-old who is, um, he is, he is determined that he is no longer a little kid. He's like, I'm not a little kid anymore. You think he's having a conversation with my wife. He goes, I'm not a little kid anymore, Mom. And uh, Amanda goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm not a little, I'm not a little baby, but I'm not a grown-up. I'm a medium person. <laughs> I'm a medium person. So we have no idea exactly what that means, but it, generally he wants to be in the middle of all things. So there's like whatever that is. So like at night, we have kind of a ritual we do every, every so often, which is the, we have chocolate milks at night, and we put them on the counter. And he wants to know for sure. Mom, Dad, I want the middle one. I want, and if you try to give him another one, he just goes, that's not the middle one. Thank you. Like he just, he has to have the medium, the middle, the medium. That's his whole deal. And if anybody tries to mess with it, he kind of gets a little out of shape. Some of you guys are like, that's hilarious. I don't do those things. Ha, ha, ha. I'll speak personally. Uh, just, just to the guys. Again, I make a little gener- generalization here. I tend to do that from time to time. Guys who are married, have you ever tried to drive with your wife while you are in the, sh- or are you in the shotgun seat and she drives? Tell me about the time you drove with her and you didn't say anything about her, di- about her driving. <laughs> Can't really recall that time. I think I, you know, and you look like, that car's close and you're too, why don't you pass that person? I mean, you are like that. I'm never like that, but you are. But that's just, this is my, own, I mean, this is my life, right? This is what I, all the time. And my wife, Amanda, will look at me and go, you realize I drive all the time and I don't die? I don't need you to help me figure that out, right? I'm like, I don't know, but you're, I don't know how it's a miracle that you don't die, right? Because you do it differently than I do. Now, when Jesus begins his ministry, he starts antagonizing all these people because he's doing things differently than the way they've always known it. They have a certain set of expectations. They have a certain set of beliefs. They have an understanding about the way things are supposed to go. And he keeps confronting them on those things, challenging the very assumptions that they have about how life is supposed to happen. And of course, when anybody does that to us, we get a little bit unnerved. We get a little bit unwound. And this is what Jesus uh, is doing in his ministry. Now, we'll pick up this story. So hang on to this idea. We're going to pick up this story in Luke chapter 6, verse 17. It says this. He went down with them and stood at a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And all the people, uh, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And looking at his disciples, he said, we'll get to that in a second. So here's Jesus. 
who has come down. Now you can see right here, well, just look at this, Luke 6, 17. It says this, he just says, he went down with them and stood at a level place. In the book of Matthew, you have Jesus went down to a mount, a sermon on the mount, as you might know. This is where Jesus is going to start talking in Luke. It is called the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on this, the level place. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Jesus has come down, which means he was up somewhere. So if you're with us last week, Mike Todd, who did a great job. I got so much great feedback. And he did such a great job. The guy who was doing the announcements before. He did such a great job. I, I you know, just heard so many great, so many great feedback stories, people coming and receiving prayer and kind of, gosh, great stuff. And he told a story about the disciples being chosen from just the passage immediately before this. And it starts this in Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 12. It says this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples, disciples just means apprentice, to him, and chose 12 of them. So out of these apprentices, he took 12, whom he also designated apostles, which means sent ones, which Mike talked about last week. Now, there's all, there's this crowd of people. Jesus grabs 12 of them, and he goes up onto a mountain, and he's having this time with God. So when he comes down to have this conversation, doing whatever he's doing, he has come down from a mountain. Now, there is a guy famously in the Hebrew Bible, who went up on a mountain and spent some time with God, and then he came down with some words of wisdom for a group of people who have gathered, all of God's people are gathered at the base of this mountain. His name was Charlton Heston. (laughs) Right? So Moses. Now there is clearly a connection here between what Luke is explaining and what Jesus is doing. There is God's man... Jesus, or Moses in this case, or I'm sorry, Moses, or Jesus in this case, going up on a mountain to be with God, and then the expectation is that he would come down and deliver to people some words from God. This is, a, this is what we would call a prophetic word. This is a God's mouthpiece kind of language. So Jesus is, in, his, in, es, in essence, the second Moses delivering people from captivity into freedom. Now the expectation is, so by the way, I have to tell you this. I'm going to um, do a little bit of Bible gymnastics, and you're going to have to stay with me because some of you are going to go, where are you going? You, you've lot, the wheels have come off. You went on vacation last week, and then everything just fell apart. Just trust me. I will land this plane. I promise. You're going to go, it's circling the airport, running out of gas. I got it. Just trust me. Okay, everybody with me? All right. Now, Moses goes up on this mountain, Mount Sinai, has this conversation with God. He comes down with the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. He is, in essence, what he's doing is he's, not in essence, in actuality, what he's doing is he's, he's affirming God's covenant with his people. The covenant is just this really powerful Bible word that means bond between two people. And there's going to be a covenant relationship, and God has given to Moses the terms, the promises, the stipulations of what that covenant looks like. And then he's going to give it to all these people. So Ten Commandments are the, you know, this is the first step of it. Then he gives, the, gives Moses the rest of what's called the Torah or the law or the guidance for the rest of his people. In other words, here's how you guys live as newly freed people. This is the way it, what it looks like. To be, and the covenant promises, I will be your God. You will be my people. Here's how that works. That's what that is. So Moses comes down with this covenant for his people. Now, in a covenant... There are curses and there are blessings. There are stipulations. And I want to show you what that looks like. So Moses comes down from the mountain. And he has this, he has a bunch of stuff. But I want you to see what he gives to his people are some of the terms of this covenant. Deuteronomy 28, you have this. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will set you, set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. 
So there's going to be all these things you get by being God's covenant people, his people who are bound to him. And here's, here's what it says. Now, I'm going to just read this through. This is a list that has about 15 blessings, okay? Maybe a little, maybe a little fewer than that. There's 15 verses or so on the blessing. I'm going to read you a fewer than these, but check this out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing upon your barns and everything you put your hand to. The Lord will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Then all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity, the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, the crops of your ground, and in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. Now here's a couple things you have to know. What God is saying is you're going to have this massive blessing. And generally in the ancient Near East, what you have is blessing. A couple things. You have land, you have fertile crops, fertile animals, and your own fertility. These are all things that generally mark people's blessing. In addition, you have a reputation that is widely known as being a good one. That matters in, a, in, a, in, a, in an honor-shame culture. So you have a great reputation. Keep reading. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land and to bless the work of your, of your hands. He will, you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail if you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you to this day and carefully follow them. You will always be at the top and never at the bottom. So, people who are part of God's covenant community show these things. They live out these kind of things. There's this blessing that comes to them and they have all of this kind of stuff, but there's this other side of the blessing, other side of this covenant, which we would call curses or in some cases, woes or warnings to people who violate God's covenant. Some of you go, where are you going with this? I'm still nervous. Just trust me, I will land the plane. Here's what it says. Now listen, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. There's like over 50 verses just in this passage alone of curses if you don't follow. It's like, some of you are like, oh man, this is, this is the church always does. Good people get stuff, bad people get... I, Stay with me. Land in the plane in a second. Here we go. We're circling the airport here. We're almost there. Okay. Deuteronomy 28. Here's, here's the curses. Listen to these things. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading dough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke everything you put your hand to until you're destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you've done in forsaking him. Wow. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he's destroyed you, des- destroyed you from the land you're entering to possess. Well, no, no, here's land and disease here. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze. The ground beneath you will be iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. Wow, this is serious. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. Notice the reversal from before. You will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on the earth. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them, frighten them away. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors, festering sores, and something that's just called the itch. We don't know what that is. From which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. Whoa. Now, here's why this matters. Plains landing. People who had all of the things that would be counted as blessing, those are people everybody in the ancient Near East would assume are people who are righteous people. So if you've got land, you've got a lot of kids, 
your offspring are, I mean, your, your livestock are producing offspring. You have a good reputation in the community. These are all indications that God's favor has been upon you and that you must therefore then be a righteous person. Now, if you don't have those things, if you have things like disease, if you have things like madness, if you have things that people might think you're crazy, if you cannot have your own children, if your land isn't working, which means you're becoming a poor person, all of that kind of stuff means you are a cursed person. And what happens is you can see the subtlety here. What begins to happen in the ancient Near East, among the people Jesus is most around, you begin to see people pulling away from those who have already been cursed, further victimizing people who suffer. Now when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, he begins to challenge all of the assumptions about what we know about curse and blessing. Because the people he runs to very first are not the people everybody assumed who were the righteous ones, who had all these things that looked like blessing. He ran to the people who were already living as cursed people in the public eye. People who were poor. People who needed healing. People who were desperate for their next meal. That's who he went to. These are the people that everybody else thought, these guys are absolutely cursed, and so we should keep our distance. And yet this is who Jesus goes to, and he begins to rewire the way people think about righteousness. He begins to rewire the way people think about blessing, rewire the way people think about curses all together. And when he says this to a group of people, when he begins to talk about this stuff, when he comes down from the mountain, explaining what it looks like to be a participant in God's kingdom work through Jesus in the world, the people are prepared to have the old movie, the one they remember, where Charlton Heston comes down and how they have built their lives on their own assumptions about how that's supposed to work. They remember the Moses version. And Jesus comes down and people who are, who are comfortably living in that life are expecting him to validate what they already know, only he doesn't do that. He challenges everything that they know. Now, what Jesus says is shocking. It's super shocking. And our tendency to look at this is to go, let's just try to mitigate some of the shock. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for Jeff to give me a little curveball explanation that makes it all cool. It, is, it just isn't. What Jesus says is incredibly shocking. And the audience of people that's there, they're not people who are investigating Jesus. It says that the crowd that has gathered are his disciples. So from the disciples, you have 12. These are the apostles. These are the, you know, the guys that got sent out. But there's all of these people who are following Jesus. It says that there's a massive crowd of people there. And Jesus comes down from the mountain, and the first people he goes to are the people who are oppressed, who are uh, in the margins of society, people who are suffering illnesses, people who are stricken with some kind of demonization. He goes to those people, and he heals them. And then he begins to speak to his disciples, people that are already on the end. And here's what he says. Flip your outline over. It's in Luke 6, 20. He says this. Looking at his disciples, he said, he said, Blessed are you who are poor. This is formerly a curse, remember. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, which means you have a bad reputation in the community. When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Because of Jesus saying, because of me. Son of Man is the title he uses for himself. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Now, the word prophet is a word simply meaning God's mouthpiece to the people. It doesn't just mean someone who talks about the future. We tend to think of it only in those terms. So what he's saying is God sent people to talk on his behalf to his people. And without exception, when those prophets would show up, 
the people rejected those prophets. So much so that generally they were killed, they were persecuted, like, hey, I'm, I got, I'm God's mouthpiece, here you go. And they go, we don't like what you're saying, we put a little, I don't think so. And so what you have here is that Jesus is saying, people who are treated poorly for my sake, that's just like the, that's just like the prophets. And Jesus is identifying all these things that were te- traditionally understood to be cursed peoples, poor, hungry, weeping, people with a bad reputation who were hated in the community. And he says, blessed are those people? To which the people who are listening there go, that's not true. We know they're not blessed. They're miserable. We can look at them and see that. They're right here in our midst. They don't eat and we do. They're not blessed. Now Jesus is beginning to mess with people a lot here. He begins to start pointing out some things here. And here's then this other side of things. He begins to talk about curses to the other group of people that are there. And he says this, but woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Woe is like this warning. It's like, hey, you you have to be aware this is a big deal. And he says, you guys who who are rich, you got to be careful. Because when, you know, your, your ancestors... And woe to you guys who kind of think that everybody's got a great reputation here. Your ancestors were loved and loved the people who were the false prophets. They started saying up being imposters and everybody loved them. But they were so off. And the room is stunned. I mean, the, the, the audience, the, the sort of the, the plane, the you know, field where he is. They're stunned. They're not like, wait, this is, what, Jesus, when you said that, you were, you, I, you were this, is like a, this is like a, what are you going to do with this? Because this doesn't make sense. We know blessing, we know curses, we've been blessed, we've been cursed, we know we've experienced all that stuff, we've seen it in our community, we've seen it in our family, and you are saying things that don't make sense to us. And what he's saying is, in so many ways, is that there is a, there is a false set of values that the rich get about themselves, which is this belief in full and total independence from ever needing anything else, that the greatest needs of their life can be answered by themselves, by their own wisdom, by their own ability to manipulate, to take, to, to, to have, and to hoard. Jesus is saying, woe to you guys. Now, most of us read that and go, well, the rich better watch out. (laughs) They just better be careful because those rich people, I'm glad I'm not one of you. I'm kind of in the middle. Turns out 98% of America puts themselves in the middle. Almost everybody says, oh, I'm kind of in the middle. I might be on the upper or the lower, but I'm I'm not on the upper part. From a global standpoint, if you just, now again, I'm gonna make some generalizations about people in this room. They're not true for everybody, but they probably are. If you have a car, you are among the richest people in the world. High school students are like, not me, I don't have one yet. I know, it's coming, you guys. Someday. I don't know, I haven't talked to your parents. Probably not you, raise your hand. Probably not you. Yeah, you raise your hand, it's not you. I talked to your parents, it's not happening for you. You get a scooter. No, like a Razor scooter, one of these. Okay. If you have a bike and a car, oh my gosh, tell me about your country club that you belong to. If you have two vehicles in your house, you are unbelievably through the roof rich. If you think to yourself, if you've ever had this thought, man, I probably shouldn't eat that because it has too many calories, you're rich. (laughs) There are so many, the tendency for us is to say, whatever Jesus is talking about here probably doesn't apply to me because I'm not that, there there are people who have more than me and therefore they're the rich Jesus is speaking of. 
clearly what's happening here is there is a false set of values that are contradictory to the kingdom of God that Jesus is speaking against. In which he says, what you know about blessing, what you know about curse, they're all different. Everything's backwards. Now remember, the audience is all people who are already following Jesus, who are already in, and he's telling them, you guys have to consider some stuff. Now, among them are rich, some of them are poor, some of those who have their eye on the kingdom of God are looking for some things to see what God would do and all this kind of stuff. They're having this kind of expectation of God's work in the world. And what most people who are rich expect is that God will show up and say, I want to affirm what you're doing and give you more. And then Jesus goes, woe to you who have all this stuff. I'm not going to give you more of that. In fact, people who don't have anything. I got my eye on them because they know something that you don't, rich people, which is dependence. They know about this kind of stuff. Now, some of you are kind of going, okay, I'm waiting for that curveball you're going to give me. You're going to say some Greek word or something that kind of softens the blow of this. <laughs> this is all, I'm waiting for that. Go ahead and give me that. It's not coming. This is, we just have, did he really mean that? We have a tendency in our own lives to minimize information that we don't think we agree with, that we think is not all that on par with the way things we have already built our systems in our world and our life. Psychologists call this the backfire effect. It means, uh, um, it means that there's, in some capacity or another, we get, we get information that contradicts a given belief, and we kind of have this, almost this, even if it's true, we have a reaction that says that must not be true. We can't avoid it. It's just naturally built into us. Here's, here's what I mean. This is the backfire effect. When examining evidence relevant to a given belief, people are inclined to see what they expect to see and conclude what they expect to conclude. For desired conclusions, we ask ourselves, can I believe this? For unpalatable conclusions, we ask, must I believe this? Here's the most, most clear example. Anybody ever gotten on a scale before? You get on a scale and you go, that can't be right. Let me just step off again. Just, I mean, it's more information on that because there's no way that that is correct. And let me take off this necklace because that's going to make a difference. <laughs> Unless you're Mr. T, that does not help you. But you try that again. I think I was balanced. I was too much on the right foot this time. I'm going to try and hop up and see what happens, and then let's see if I can look at the scale. And you kind of have to see over and over and over again that the evidence is actually there that, no, 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 the scale's not, yeah, that scale's broken for sure. We're going to need, need a scale, honey. It's, it's broken. We're, over and over and over again, we have to have it because we don't believe in it. If we get on the scale and it affirms what we believe, we have been successful in whatever effort it is to try to trim calories, whatever it is, we get on there and we go, ha, Love that scale. Get on into the shower and do whatever else you got to do in your bath. What we're saying here is, when we encounter things that are challenging to us, generally what we'll say is, did, that, did he really mean that stuff? Is that for real? Because I guarantee the audience that's hearing this too is asking the very same question. Even the people who are receiving this sort of announcement of blessing too are getting the same thing. When we hear information that challenges our existing beliefs, we tend to begin to say things like, there has to be another interpretation. There has to be another way to look at it. We have to color coat this in such a way that it favors us. It's kind of like this quote from a movie you may have seen before. And I just want you to, to see this and then we'll, we'll chat about it. So here's, here's, maybe you relate to this. I like you a lot. <laughs> I want to ask you a question. Straight out, flat out, I want you to give me an honest answer. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me <laughs> ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. We really don't... Hit me with it. 
Just give it to me straight. <laughs> I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> the next line, of course, is, I read you. I read you. He's like, you know, totally calm. Now, you can see what's happening here. She's telling him as clearly as she can, mathematically, we're not going to end up together. To which he's like, well, did I say there's a chance? I think when we encounter things like this, Jesus, that Jesus is saying to people, we immediately figure out a way to not be the people he's trying to warn. Well, it's not us. It's the other people. We try to find a way to sort of get our way around it such that it doesn't affect us. But let me just propose something. What if it is you to whom he is speaking about this stuff? How does it change the way you react to things? How you think about stuff? What does this do? We have a belief at some point or another in our lives. When we start acquiring material stuff, we have a belief that happens to us every so often. We have this sort of, this, we begin to do two things. One of them, at the, the least dangerous, although they're both dangerous, the lesser of the two is we begin to think that this is something we just deserve. We're entitled to these things. And principally what we look at is the world around us and go, see, the world has these things, and I don't want more than them. I just want the same. You know, I'm a high school kid. I'm 16 years old. I should have a car because someone else I know has one. I should have one. Maybe I should have, you know, some other things too, the other kid, you know, and as we do as parents too. As parents, we go, you know, I, don't, I wasn't really sure I, my, my kid should have a cell phone or a, an iPhone or an iDevice or a Mac, anything, but everybody else seems to, so I guess they should. And we start thinking about our own lives, and we go, well, I should have that job, or I should have these things that are part of my, I should have that stuff in my own life. And all of a sudden, we begin thinking, I'm entitled to this kind of stuff. And when we encounter difficulty or struggle in our life, most of us, again, generalizations, we run to a couple things. A lot of us run to something to eat and something to just buy. We can take control of our lives and things get a little haywire when they start getting a little bit crazy. And participation in the life with Jesus is so different than the way the world does this. The world has systems. The world has beliefs. It has manners and modes of thinking. And when Jesus goes, I th we need to challenge the passive acceptance, the tacit acceptance of those things in our lives. The John, the... Um, the, the apostle, who, or, you know, he's, he writes in his letter, one of his letters, he writes this. In 1 John 2, 15, he says this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Now, what he's talking about is the powers and systems that govern the way in which the world functions. He's not talking about the earth in terms of, like, God's creation. He's talking about the systems and powers that govern the way our society functions. And he says, don't love the world. Verse 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now here's what he says in a more contemporary language. What he's saying is, talking about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. These are things we would say are simply sex, money, power. That's simple, that is the simplest way to put it. 
And he says, if you are looking to the world and you're hoping to gain some of those things from the world to answer the deepest needs of your soul, you're going to be left empty. And he says, if you are going to be a participant in God's kingdom, following Jesus, you will have something that never ends. This is what Jesus is challenging people to do. In fact, the word lust in there, you see it a couple times. See the word lust and the word desire. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, the world and its desire, that stuff. The word, the word lust is the word epitumios. And it's a word that if you translate it, it literally, it literally means to set the heart upon, to long, to crave, to desire. Now, if I think about those words, and I take them out, just their, their English sort of translation, and I think about what does it mean to set my heart upon, to crave, to desire, to long for, those are words or phrases that describe the act of worship. What tends to happen to people who have a lot of stuff is that more often than not, we begin to start worshiping the blessing more than the blesser. And Jesus is saying, if you are worshiping the blessing, you will miss out on the life with the blesser. For so many of us, we are caught up in the belief that if I could have a few more things, if I could have a little bit more of what they have, then my life would be better. Most of us, selfing myself included, are looking for ways to manage the, the systems and, and powers of the world such that they benefit us that I'm so independent that I don't need anything, including God himself. This passage we read in Luke isn't just about trying, you shouldn't go try to become poor. There's not just an inherent virtue in just in being poor. But what he's saying is the poor, those who suffer, have a very clear understanding of what it means to be dependent. The rich somehow seem to lose that. See, we're caught up in the world, I, I, I was, this past week, I was buying something from Marshalls, which is, you know, that's sort of like half combat and half shopping at the same time, you know. But I go in there, and I'm, I, I bought a pair of shorts, and I just started thinking, oh, I, need, I need way more of this stuff. Look at all these racks of clothes. They'll just go to waste if I don't buy them. And I just, I don't need all these things. They probably don't fit anyways, because you buy socks or Marshalls, and one's like that much longer than the other one, like in a regular sock. Like, I think these will work. And I'm walking out, and I have all the impulse buy. I need that water. I need that water cup, and I need that treat for my dog. And I need, I need whatever that is. That looks like some kind of exercise equipment. I probably should use that. I mean, just like you start gathering these things. And I start thinking, these are the ways I'm going to manage whatever's going on in my life, whatever it might be. And I'm like, this is an indicator of something. I don't need all these things. And I end up just basically frustrating all the clerks there because I took all this stuff as I'm gathering through the, through the store and just placed them all on like a shelf as I'm about to walk out next to the headphones or something. I'm like, well, thanks a lot for that. You're welcome. I'm only going to buy these shorts. I promise. But we look at our whole life and think these are the things I want to do. Now, here's the deal. There is, there is one incredibly very practical way in which we deal the, with the stranglehold. Because again, remember, I'm assuming everybody in here, you fall in the category of rich. You don't get to say, huh, those rich people better walk out. It's everybody in here. Now, we've experienced the poverty and pain and loneliness and despair. We've experienced desperation, desperation in those terms. But in terms of our material stuff, I just want to give you, there is a very difficult, very hard to hear, very step on and off the scale moment for you that is coming when I tell you what this is. Because the way in which we, we really actually begin to recenter the blesser over the blessing is incredibly difficult. Brace yourselves for this. You're waiting for the moment when I soften this. There will be no softening. Here it comes. 
when we talk about this anti-American kind of cultural value, this anti-deal, this anti-systems and powers of the world, value, it is going to be weird. Here we go. Ready? The antidote, the, the action step for you is generosity. The one thing that frees us from the grip our stuff has over us is when we give stuff away. It's the only way. And the reason why some of you are like, oh, you know, I don't trust the church. (laughs) There he is. He's trying to angle this. This is just in the Bible. I'm not making this up. Maybe there's a part of you that just stepped off the scale to get another evaluation. I know that's what I do. Oh, wait, wait, wait. There's got to be another way because I love my stuff. And I've even bought stuff I can't afford that I'm paying for after I buy it. We call that credit. I don't want to part with my stuff. And I would give more, but my stuff's already, I already, I, I can't. I have so much to contain. So here's what Jesus says further on in Luke. Luke chapter 12. And do not, this is verse 29, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is insane. What he's saying is your money directs your heart. Not the other way around. We tend to think, well, I gotta get my heart right, then I'm gonna really be sure, and then I'm gonna. It's like what he's saying is your money actually changes your heart. That is insane. What does it look like for you? You have a way of doing things. You have always done them. What does it look like for you to reconsider what it might look like to be a person who is participating in God's kingdom in a brand new way where your own heart is directed by your generosity, not by the demands of the world? Go ahead and close your eyes. I know as you're sitting there, some of you are like, this is just, this is, this is just too much. I can't, you know, this is, this is over the top. I don't know what to do with this. Some of you um, will need, as we kind of have a time to respond in a moment, you're going to want to come forward. You're going to want to write some prayers down and place them in the prayer wall. Some of you may need to write some confession down in those, in those prayers and place, the, place them in the prayer wall. But we have a brand new understanding of what it means for blessing and for curses. Jesus, we have to undo the way that we think about blessing and cursing. We have to think about the way you favor people. We have to understand, Jesus, how your kingdom works, and we just don't get it. All of us at some level believe, God, that we don't need you at times, and Father, we need you. Father, we know that so much of the material stuff that we have in our lives or that's material stuff that we are pursuing in our lives masks the real pain and the real soul need of our hearts. So Jesus, we need you. We confess that we need you. Father, as we respond in song and in prayer, would you hear our prayer? Might we really actively consider what it looks like to receive the blessing you have already given us, which is you. You are the blessing. And so much, Father, of our life we say, you're not enough. And so, Lord, would you hear our prayers as we sing them, as we write them, or as we come forward to receive prayer? Would you hear them and you respond to us in love and in tenderness?
knowing that you came to the people who were already believed to be cursed, that you might welcome them into the kingdom. So Jesus, we pray these things and we sing these things in your name. Amen.